Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am your host, Elaine miller Karras. Today's show is about cultivating resilience and compassion. My guests today are Brendan Ozawa da Silva and Timothy Harrison. They are both from the Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics at Emory University. The center was established by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Emory University to carry out the, the joint vision of a compassionate and ethical world for all. And its mission is to promote human flourishing by developing educational programs, facilitating dialogue, and engaging in research. They will illuminate us about two programs developed by the center. The first is called Cognitively Based Compassion Training. We're going to call it CBCT for brevity during the the broadcast for adults. And the second is called Social, Emotional, and Ethical Learning. We're going to be calling it C-Learning. Um, and these, and this is for students from the ages of kindergarten through 12 and higher education. Both programs are the subject of scientific research and aim to be at the cutting edge of trauma and resilience-informed contemplative practice. Tim and Brendan will outline the programs which have incorporated resilience skills, including the community resiliency model, and will discuss how contemplative practice and resilience skills can be integrated for the promotion of physical, mental, and social well-being. But let me tell you a little bit about our guests first. So Timothy Harris joined the Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics in 2013 and is the Associate Director of CBCT. He coordinates the expanding CBCT teacher certification program, as well as the provision for CBCT for research studies. He's been a long-term practitioner of both Lojong and Zen meditation before expanding his outreach to those of various backgrounds through CBCT. Brendan Ozawa da Silva is the Associate Director of C-Learning at the Center. His research focuses on the psychological, social, and ethical dimensions of pro-social emotions and their cultivation with a focus on compassion and forgiveness. And his chief interest lies in bringing secular ethics, the cultivation of basic human values into education and society. I happen happen to know about both of these gentlemen that they are both like music and they play instruments. They didn't put that in their bio, but I have to do a little shout out because I actually heard Brendan play and he is quite good at what he does. Um, he is, if you could see him right now, he is smiling. So I did bring that into your your CVs. So I met both Tim and Brendan through my work at the Trauma Resource Institute and have been honored to serve as one of the senior consultants to the C-Learning Program. So my two guests, as we start, is there anything that is on your mind that you would like to begin with? And I'm going to start with Brendan. Yeah, I was that, thinking yes. that incredible intro and summary, summary of our work and programs was so brilliant. I don't think I've ever heard it done better before. And I was thinking we need to hire you not as our trauma and resiliency expert alone, but as a kind of marketing PR guru. Oh, well, I'm there for you. You know, anything that you, ask, so you ask me to do, I'm there at Emory. You know that, Brendan. Okay. Yeah, that was great. That was great. It made us sound very impressive, actually. All right. <laughs> Okay, Tim, how about for you? Is there anything that's on your mind that you'd like to begin with now that we've heard Brendan's uh, marketing ideas? Well, I have to admit, I think Brendan put some words to uh, 
my feelings is like which was how are we going to live up to this uh, incredible <laughs> introduction <laughs> oh i think you um, i know that you can um but i i want to i want to start out with a question to both of you because we were of course had spoken before the show started and um about how you two met because it really mm-hmm. does kind of journey into the work that you're doing so tim i think you wanted to go first to talk about how you and okay. brendan met sure yeah and it does really connect to the topic at hand um so it it yeah, I really think it it was probably in 2010, so over a decade ago now. I was at you know living in Atlanta, uh, an architect and um, parent of young children, and heard about the Dalai Lama coming to Emory University to have some conversations with scientists and researchers, and thought, well, you know, I really I've done some meditation on my own, a lot a lot. A lot focused on uh, stress reduction for myself, and but I want to hear what this is all about. Why would the Dalai Lama be speaking at Emory University? So I went to that, and um, there they were talking. The panel that I could get tickets to was a panel about some new research on a meditation program that was actually focused on compassion for others, not just. Self, uh, stress reduction and kind of self-insight, which is what I had thought meditation was all about. And then uh, I thought that was interesting. Pretty, I said, I'm going to take that course. So I signed up for it. But then a couple of years later, um, I was trying to figure out a place for my son to go to second grade. He had had one experience in kindergarten that wasn't so great. And then another first grade school that just wasn't right for him. And, you know, as a, as a father, there was like, there's not much more important to me than knowing, you know, that my son was being taken care of. So we were researching schools. And all of a sudden, in my own neighborhood, I heard about this school teaching this uh, compassion program to young children. And I realized this people doing it were the same ones I had heard about two years earlier. And I said, I've got to know about this. And the school said, well, you could stop in and see the class if you want. So, oh, well, yes, of course. So I went in and there was this person later known to be known to me as Brendan uh, with some colleagues there. And they had worked with an expert second grade teacher to bring this program that had been designed for young adults and adults, uh, CBCTA, to the kids. And they were experimenting with ways uh, to help young children sort of grasp and learn and connect with these concepts that were central to our compassion training program for adults. It wasn't my program yet, but, you know, I've wound up, my whole career has changed and I've joined the the center since then but that's how I met Brendan and I remember grabbing him out in the hall after the class and saying God well I got to hear no more about this what how this is amazing what you're doing and of course you know my son we wound up signing him up for that school it seemed like a good fit but well, and as you, as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, your your love for your son and making yes. sure he was well taken care of. And I think at this time in our nation, in the world, with children being at home because of the pandemic and, you know, how do we cultivate those, 
you know, those moments so that children can learn about compassion. And we see so much vitriol in the world. It just, mm. it really lightens my heart to hear you going on that search. And then, oh my goodness, that you found the treasure of Brendan. So Brendan, <laughs> I'm calling you a treasure. Um, so, I mean, cause he's, you know, he's been spearheading this wonderful program called Sea Le- Learning, but mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more. So do you remember meeting Tim and then what happened? Cause I think there was something about a prison project that was connected into all of this. I, um, it, I, uh, yes, I do remember meeting Tim very vividly, although it's, it's great to hear this story because I, I didn't know certain aspects of what he said. So I, um, we were visiting the school, the Paideia school here in Atlanta, and there are a few teachers there that welcomed us and worked with us on adapting CBCT, which, as you said at the beginning, Elaine, was a compassion training program, meditation program for adults. And they were helping us adapt it to, uh, to, to kids that, um, that I and, uh, and the colleague that Tim alluded to, Brooke Dodson Lavelle, we were, we spent a couple of years doing this, just seeing if we could bring this stuff to kids. But the, I remember the day Tim came into one of the classes, and these were um, five to seven-year-old kids, early elementary. Um, and I thought he just happened to be wandering into, through the school looking at it for his kid. I didn't know that you had the, that background and that you knew this was happening and you saw the 2010 conference and everything. So I just, we finished a class and and then I, uh, you know, we were wrapping up and this guy just comes up to me and says, oh, you know, this is great what you're doing. <laughs> I'm thinking about sending my son here. And this is so important for the boys. The boys are never going to learn this stuff unless you, you know, unless uh, people like you bring it in. That was what I remember him saying specifically. And I thought, wow, this is a nice guy. He's, he really cares about kids and his children. <laughs> but I didn't oh know who he goodness, was. Oh, my goodness. Just a second. The boys need to learn about compassion. I think this is such an important statement that you're making. I think we all do. But, there, but I think that, yes, boys, can you both illuminate a little bit more about that thinking? Go ahead, Tim. You're the one. Boys. Well, I, I, I had forgotten I said that to you, Brenda. And I totally <laughs> forgot that, but I'm not surprised. Rehearse this. This is really yeah, important, Tim. I, I, I'm not surprised I said it because I think that one of the, you know, one of the, the um, I don't know, I'd call it a regret of my life is that how long it took me to realize that I had this capacity for compassion, for love, for tenderness. And I think that's to, it's because I was raised as a male in our society where that part of me was not spoken of as a valuable part or even something that was natural for young boys to experience. And uh, so it was really only in having my own children and, you know, holding them in my hand that, that all of a sudden uh, I was having these emotions and feelings that I really didn't even know I was capable of. And in a way, my uh, 18-year-old, who ironically I just put a Band-Aid on right before our, <laughs> our meetings, I'm still Never tending, stop caring you know, for our children. Yes, yes. Yes. But um, this journey since having, of course, being a parent as best I can is hard enough. But then in my uh, professional life, it's been so rewarding to explore the science of compassion, the practice of compassion, the universality of it as well, so that maybe we can, with our programs, shift the narrative 
so that boys don't have to discover their compassion when they're 18 or fit or 40, you know, like I did. That it's something that they can know they're capable of, even at the age of five, which of course they are. Well, so I have to say that as you were talking about the tenderness that is inside of you, I feel so honored because of having been in a training with you and witnessed yes. your wonderful compassion and tenderness. And to think that it took a while to get there when yeah. I saw it so visibly and to think about what you do now is to cultivate that in, in adults in the present moment so that they don't have to wait so long. And then we have Brendan working very hard to cultivate it with children. So Brendan, back to you about this. I mean, this is, thank you so much yeah. for sharing that. Well, I think um, uh, we move on to another story, the prison story, but I think the, the, which also involves Tim and me, <laughs> Tim and I. But, uh, but I think also even in those early classes with the little kids, we saw signs of, of how there were signs of how a trauma and resilience approach would help what we were doing because we, we, we would spend sometimes weeks, months just trying to get the kids to sit still and meditate and do mindfulness on the breath and stuff like that. And we were clearly seeing that it was a lot easier in some schools than other schools. The first school we worked in was Paideia, and it was actually pretty easy in Paideia. But Paideia is a, a private school. It's a very special school here in Atlanta. Um, not, that it, not that, I mean, every school is special, but it has quite unique conditions. When we started going to private, uh, to public schools, we found that what took us a few weeks in Paideo was taking us two or three months to get, the, you know, to help the kids uh, feel settled because we weren't really using a lot of techniques uh, that were body-based at that time. But when we really started realizing that we needed a trauma-informed approach was uh, we started bringing uh, CBCT to uh, a women's prison starting in 2012. Um, and I ended up teaching in that prison. I still, I'm still connected to it, but for the next five, six years. And, um, and the very first meditation class that I went into, we were teaching CBCT. And um, one of the first guided meditations we did, the women sat down, we told them to lower or close their eyes, focus on the breath, you know, sit still. And one of the women midway through the meditation just stood up and ran out of the room. And I thought, hmm, what's mm. going on? And so at the end of the, when we finished the class, um, I said, she came back in and I said, did you, what happened? Did you hate the meditation? Do you hate this class? You know? <laughs> and she said, no, I love this. I desperately want the peace and the calmness and the serenity that I sense could come from this. But when I sit down and close my eyes, I can't do it. I can't sit there. I've got to get up and get out. I, my body was just forcing me to do this. So how do I meditate? And I thought, hmm, I've never, I've never seen that before. I'd already been teaching meditation for, I think, over 10 years or close to 10 years by then. So I, um, we, we sometimes, you know, people who work in prisons, they intentionally, you don't look up people's records. You don't, some people don't think you should know why people are incarcerated, you know, it, particularly if it leads you to view them differently uh, and maybe not see their humanity the way you would otherwise. But I thought this was an interesting case. I thought maybe I can gain some insight if I know who these women are and their background. So I looked up her case and I found she had, um, she had gotten into a fight with her girlfriend who she was living with and her girlfriend kicked her out of the room. The girlfriend owned the house, so she was the landlord. And, um, and this woman was so angry that in the middle of the night, she took the gun that was in the house and she shot her girlfriend in the head while she was sleeping. 
And when I read that story, I instantly thought, wow, somebody who has had that experience uh, um, is, is not going to be able to just sit down, close their eyes, and <laughs> attain calmness through focusing on the breath. And, um, and I reached out to a, a, a meditation teacher, a master, really, Roshi Joan Halifax, who's very famous in the American Buddhist community, a Zen teacher. Um, and I, I knew she had worked um, in prisons, maximum security prisons. I think she's worked with people on death row, I believe. But she's worked with, you know, you know I mean, serious cases in prison and, and had many years of experience. And I, I just wrote her an email. I said, Roshi, you know, I, I'm in this situation. I don't know exactly what to do. Could you help me? And she called me instantly on the phone. I was actually, the instant she got the email, I was out at dinner with my wife. And she calls me and she says, Brendan, we need to talk. And I said, well, I'm like in the middle of a meal. Can I call you back in an hour? She's like, okay, call me right back. So I get home, I call her and she says, what are you doing? And, and I say, I explain everything. I explain CBCT, I explain the prison, all that kind of stuff. And she stops me halfway. She says, okay, stop right there. Everything you're doing is wrong. I said, okay. Okay, everything <laughs> Teach me. is wrong. Teach me, okay. yeah. And, that, and she started talking about trauma and safety. And, the, and, and that led me on a journey for several years. And I, 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 you know, soon after that, I went to Tim, who had just started working, I think, at that time at Emory, running the CBCT program. I talked to Geshe Lopsang, our director, who created the CBCT program, and said, hey, we need to, you know, explore this thing. Um, and, uh, you know, because this, this is a big thing that we're running up against. I, I found that probably two-thirds of the women in those classes could not engage with meditation the way they didn't all have the experience that this woman did. Um, some of them. In terms of it being as extreme, but yeah, I'm, also, them, I'm wondering right. too about just a little connection though. So when you said that at the one school that with children were, were it was easier to teach the children how to meditate and the, the concepts that you're trying to get across, but at another school, and I can imagine that the children were from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so do you think that maybe the children's trauma had something to do with their inability to settle, just like with the, with the, um, the woman in the prison? Do you think there was a connection between the two? Yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think there was a much greater diversity in the public schools of family situations, socioeconomic background, you know, other factors, yeah, that made it hard for them to just, and, and the whole school environment is different too, you know. Um, that's something that varies quite a lot from school to school. Yeah. But I always think about, you know, the teachers of our lives sometimes come in unexpected places. And if this, this woman had not had that reaction and felt brave and courage, it really was courageous for her to step out because she couldn't stay in. And then for you to have the diligence to have, and the curiosity to ask her, you know, what had happened, because that started a trajectory for you about your trauma-informed and resiliency-informed work that, you know, really gives me some ideas of how this interest, you know, what, what sparked the interest. So I don't want to interrupt you, but continue in terms of what you want to say next about this experience, because I know you met Tim through this experience at the prison as well that led you to the work that you're both doing now. Yeah, Tim, Tim came and, and co-taught also uh, in the prison. Um, uh, when he came, there was some transition happening there too. So it was actually, we had a lot of frustrating experiences where we'd drive, you know, two hours out there, hour and a half out there and then wait. And then there'd be no students, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a particular environment, but, you know, 
but one of the things that, that we learned was, you know, two, I'd say about two thirds of the women who were participating in these courses were there for murder or felony murder. So, mm. you know, which I didn't know at the beginning because I didn't, I wasn't looking at anything or didn't know who they were. Although that was one of the things that Roshi, you know, told me was you've got to figure out who they are like to establish safety, you know, you, you have, you, you can't just do what she called the Dharma download. You're talking about the mind meld earlier before we started this call. Like sometimes we just want to download into other people's minds what we know. She's like, no, you can't, you can't do that. You've got to get to know them. You've got to build relationship. Um, So that started, you know, that started um, me certainly on a multi-year journey to kind of try to understand trauma resilience and ultimately through our mutual friend, Lindy Grabby, professor of nursing at, um, at Emory. Um, she said, Hey, that, you know, she was meeting with me and she said, Hey, there's this fantastic program and this fantastic person, Elaine Miller Karras, and there's going to be a workshop. You've got to go. And that was the trauma resiliency model workshop um, where, where we met. And now, you know, uh, all of our C learning team has been trained in the community resiliency model. It's an essential part of our program. It's chapter two in our curriculum, which you co-wrote, Elaine, yes. and it's also informed the CBCT program. So it's really changed the way we uh, view contemplative practice in the center, and the way we teach it and create our programs permanently. This association. Well, could, so could you tell us? You. So could you tell us a little bit more about how that trauma-informed resiliency-informed focus changed what you're doing? Um, sounds like that that was a, a, an important important new aspect to add to the the work that you were doing. Yeah, in the prisons. I'd be happy to because I think this is Im- very important for the whole field of contemplative science, and it's still not well known enough. I mean, we only made this. You know, we've only been doing this the past maybe five or six years now. Um, but um, but one of the things we do is we don't start directly with meditation or mindfulness of the breath. There's always something that comes before that. And, and that's one of the ways I think we've been benefited is to recognize that helping somebody find safety in the body using body-based or sensory-based practices can be an incredible uh, stepping stone or preliminary practice to meditation and to the exploration of emotions. It's not just that. I would never reduce the trauma and resiliency skills or CRIM to some kind of pre-meditation practice. I think that would really do it a disservice. But it's fantastic as a, as a way of safely preparing people to engage in contemplative practice. And, and what I've been amazed by is even people who've meditated for a long time before learning these body-based skills, they absolutely benefit for it. So it's not just for people who have suffered from trauma or have this dysregulation in the body. That's where I think also the model you have is so great, the resiliency perspective. And so how do you think it's helped people that, that you said haven't had necessarily the kind of trauma that you work with in the prison? How do you think it's helped people that um, have already had a contemplative practice? Could you illuminate the specifics of what that has looked like as you shared it with others? Yeah, well, I think we all, because, you know, as, as you, you say, it's, it's embarrassing saying this back to you, but as you you know, we all suffer from adversity and we all have bodies. We all get bumped out of our resilience zone. So that's a universal experience. In all our trainings, we always say, oh, here's the model of the, the three zones, high zone, low zone, resilience zone. What do you think it feels like to be bumped out into the high zone? And people always know. Why do you, what does it feel like to be bumped into low zone? People always know. And then we say, 
why do you think we all know this? You know, we didn't tell it to you. We just showed you this picture because we all have bodies because we're all human beings. So, you know, um, the body, the idea of regulating emotions through the body, that's amazing. You know, CBCT is, um, is cognitively based. We can regulate emotions by shifting our perspectives. We have this great thing, the Dalai Lama, who is kind of our patron, our sponsor at the center and, and the vision visionary behind the center. He likes to say, you know, uh, we have these great brains, these big brains that evolution has given us, we should use them. So we can use our brains to regulate our emotions. That's fantastic. The idea that we can use our bodies to regulate our emotions. Wow, that's amazing. That's, I think, revolutionary. And I think that, you know, there's more and more research that's being done about this. It's called interception, interceptive awareness, and that um, there's a researcher at the University of California in San Diego, Dr. Martin Paulus, who's done work on this specific thing, that when we're able to to read this nervous system of ours and then we take action, it actually in, it reduces people that have problems with impulse control, and also it helps us to have better regulations of our emotions. So I really, it's really important that we all know that there is research behind paying attention to the sensations that happen inside of our body as we go through our lived experience. And I think especially right now, you know, you're talking about the prison, but I've been working a lot in the areas of like equity and diversity and inclusion and the degree of of trauma that exists within our country regarding just what's happened over the last, you know, few years is palpable in many of us. And I think especially people of color have especially had a difficult time with some of the um, the vitriol that, that has been spewed into our environment. And so having, a, you know, sometimes we just can't say, stop, stop being afraid. Stop thinking that I don't know if this person is for or against me. How, do, how, can I, how can I navigate feeling safer in the world? And I think this sensory system that we're talking about is one of the vehicles. Because sometimes we can't talk our way through it, but we can sense our way out of it. And also sense times where we're feeling safer. So that we can say, well, I feel safer inside my house with my family. And at this moment, I can do this. If you have a, a family where you feel safe in that, maybe it's outside your family. I mean, it's, it's going to be unique and individual for all of us. But I think that bringing in the vocabulary of sensation, I've certainly seen so important in the work that, we're, that, that I've done. And I've seen that you've in, integrated into the work that you're doing. So could you tell us a little bit more? Um, I really want to you know, know more, have our listeners know about um, the focus on the promotion of compassion above all else in bo- both programs. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of that emanates from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and how you two walk in carrying out some of this uh, wonderful, these wonderful ideas in practice. So could um, whichever one well, of you wants to go first. I, go ahead, if Tim. If I may start that by tying it to something you were just talking about, Elaine, because the basic idea, and I think science is bearing this out, is that compassion is something that can be learned. It's a, it's a skill. It's something we can grow, we can develop, and we can help children grow and develop it. But one of the great insights that I um, carry from your resiliency training, Elaine, was about how this zone of well-being, when we're in that zone, it's not just our zone of resiliency. It's not just that it feels good to be there. But also that's where we learn best. That's where we can make sense of new experience, of difficult experience. 
And that's what learning is. Learning always includes, uh, by definition in some ways, some uh, making sense of something that didn't make sense before. There's always some element of tension or stress that comes with shifting in a way that deepens our knowledge, deepens our awareness, deepens our understanding. So I think being in that zone um, is really helpful for the teachers in the C learning program, and it's proving really helpful for the CBCT program as well to understand that adults as well are going to learn best in that zone of well-being. Oh, oh, Tim, I just love what you said. It's making sense out of things that maybe we we didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And somehow these concepts, in a very simple way, help us have more self-compassion mm-hmm. and then thus more compassion for others around us. But if we don't have that peace, sometimes we can't get to that 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 part of how we cultivate and learn that compassion. Oh, I love that. It's it's almost time for us to take our break. And mm-hmm. I just want all of our listeners to know that when we return, that Tim and Brendan are going to share more of what they're of this of this great wisdom about compassion and the work they're doing through these two programs. So stay tuned as they come back and uh, illuminate us more about the work that they're doing at Emory University. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. 
Now, back to this week's show. I'm here with Brendan Ozawa-Silva and, and Tim Harrison. They have more thoughts about cultivating compassion and how we can learn compassion. Um, we have, a, oh, I'm so glad we have another half an hour to continue our conversation. So, Tim, you had some more you want, wanted to say about this. Well, I thought I could just share briefly this idea that you could learn compassion. What do we mean by that? So, for people, for many people, that's a new idea. You know, I know I was raised believing or kind of told some people are compassionate, some people not so compassionate. Uh, in my case, you know, Tim, your sister's so compassionate and you're not so compassionate. <laughs> so, um, you know, the reality is we all have the capacity for it. And we, we favor this analogy of the flower garden. If you love beautiful flowers and you want to grow a beautiful flower garden throughout your yard, you know, then how do you do that? And you don't just sit back and close your eyes and wish for flowers. You study what are the conditions that will help flowers to thrive in my yard? What kinds of flowers grow here, there? Um, how much moisture is needed? How much sun like this? And in the same way, the, the programs at our center at Emory, the Compassion Center, are based on an understanding of compassion as something that arises when the conditions are there to support compassion arising. We all have the seeds for it. We all have the seed inside of us, but it's not always going to show up unless the conditions are there. So uh, two of the main conditions uh, for compassion for others are identifying with them or empathizing with them, kind of seeing their perspective, seeing that they are uh, another valuable human being just like you. Um, as Brendan said, we all have bodies and minds. That's one way of understanding that others are like me, no matter who they voted for, right? So, or who they, what nation they live in or what color their skin is. And the other condition that's so important is um, sense of uh, tenderness toward them or closeness toward them, seeing the value of them and what they contribute to the world like that. So, those are ways of thinking about others. But before we even look at those conditions, we, in our program, focus on what really could be loosely uh, uh, sort of understood as ways to be resilient within ourselves. Because the fact is, if you're cultivating compassion, you're going to start feeling these feelings of wishing other people could be well. And that, that those feelings are going to expand to include more and more others. That's when we say compassion training, we're not just talking about becoming more compassionate toward those we already love and care for, um, but actually extending that to include more and more others. So to do that, we need to, uh, or it's going to help us if we can also be more resilient. So this is where resilience skills come in. This is where self-compassion comes in learning to relate to our, our limitations with kindness, learning to relate to our, our flaws, our mistakes with, without that harsh inner critic. So we have a whole part of our program we call self-compassion, where we really examine that inner uh, negative self-talk that so many of us, not all of us maybe, but so many of us experience, you know, you're not good enough or you're not, you'll never succeed. And just to see that for what it is and relate, 
learn to shift our attitude to our, toward ourselves to have more kindness. So self-compassion is an important ingredient of compassion, actually. And then there's also a kind of what a lot of people would call a mindfulness portion of our uh, component. It's, it's to be aware of our inner feelings, our inner uh, thoughts, the things that are going on inside is actually also important to be able to cultivate compassion because that awareness allows us then to work with this inner landscape, if you will, our, our garden of compassion flowers. But before we do any of that, any of that, in CBCT, we have something we call the foundational module, which correlates very uh, directly with the, the CRIM model that we've learned so much about, which is about identifying uh, ways to calm ourselves, to feel more safe, more secure, to stay in that zone of resilience when we can, to notice when we're being pushed out of it, to notice when our body is telling us, oh, you're getting uh, activated here, either high or low, and then have skills to come back and stay centered. So that's this, that, that foundation, as I mentioned before the break, is the foundation of any learning. So that's the, that's the starting point. But it all is heading toward compassion. Have I left things out, Brenda? Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say, and, and, your, and your program is focused towards adults. And then I'm hearing, yes. I mean, one of the things that I loved about uh, getting ready for the show is finding out, of course, that CBCT came first and that the C Learning Program grew out of it. And this was, isn't this our, 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 our launch that we're letting people know that happened? You said this is the first time that maybe it's been spoken out loud. <laughs> Brendan is looking at me with a big smile. So can you let us know, Brendan, a little bit about how did that happen? We just heard about the, the CBCT program and what it's doing. And then what, what about C-Learning and how is it connected? Yeah, um, thanks, Elaine. Yeah, CBCT was created by Geshe Lopsang Tenzin, the director of our center, um, from around 2004 to 2005, he created this program because there were other, as Tim mentioned, there were other mindfulness meditation programs, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs like that. But there wasn't really um, a program around compassion for self and others. Um, and also the name cognitively-based compassion. So these techniques were drawn from cognitive approaches taken from the Lojong tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. And so this idea of uh, shifting perspectives to cultivate compassion is, and focusing on interdependence and these kinds of things, there wasn't really a program like that. Um, mindfulness programs are much more common at that time. Um, so uh, so that, was, that was created and the first, uh, it was also created to promote the science of compassion. So, you, you know, to, to, to scientifically evaluate compassion, whether it can be cultivated as a skill, as Tim said, which was still much more of an open question back then, 15 years ago. Uh, and there wasn't no one, the term science of compassion, I don't think anybody used that term back then. There was really no science of compassion. So, um, so studies started being done. The first study was on undergraduates. And then, um, you know, there was a, a five-year study. Uh, our group got a NIH grant to run a five-year study with adults. Um, but pretty early on, people in the Atlanta area started saying, hey, you know, what about kids? Could kids benefit from this too? So um, uh, someone from the Depart Georgia's Department of Family and Child Services reached out 
and said, could we do this with uh, foster children in the state system? So for about two years, um, we started teaching uh, CBCT to foster kids. And at the same time, um, the Paideia School reached out, Barbara Dunbar at the Paideia School reached out and said, could we bring this to our school and could we do this for kids? So um, early on, especially working with the early elementary school kids, it became clear that we weren't going to be able to use the standard way of delivering CBCT, which, you know, back then it was to sit in front of a group of people and kind of deliver a one-hour lecture and then lead them in a guided <laughs> no, meditation. No, that wasn't going to work with little kids, no. No. So, uh, so we started working, as, as Tim said, um, just adapting everything into activities, games, you know, exercises for the kids, really breaking it down. We worked with Kelly Richards, who later became a curriculum writer for the C-Learning program, who was a teacher at Paidea. And we started kind of crafting things. And then Tim alluded to the 2010 visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama to Emory. His Holiness has visited um, the Dalai Lama has visited Emory several times. Uh, and founded the Emory-Tibet Partnership, which then became our center in 1998. And in 2010, he visited, and a few of us, uh, Geshe Lobsang and I, and a few others, we were able to present on what we were doing. And we, and I was, I was given the opportunity to be the one to present on what we were doing with kids, uh, which was great, and in schools. And um, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, I'll never forget. He, after I gave the presentation, he said, "It seems like." Um, you know, it seems like it's dawn now and the sun is coming out. Like that was his reaction oh in the presentation. And I was just kind of, I was blown away, you know. Now, can I just um, ask you one little simple question? As you, as you share this experience of what His Holiness the Dalai Lama said to you about dawn, uh, what do you notice happening on the inside? I'm just curious, since this is a, we're talking about sensations. What are you aware of, Brendan? Well, I think it, you know, it, it brings me back to that moment, I think, of that yeah. surreal moment. I'm not even sure I can put it into words. And is it, is it I feel in my body, you know, it's funny. Um, that's such an incredible experience. I don't even know whether I can categorize it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is something I've been doing with you for at least six years I know, now. for a long time. Um, it's transcendent. Transcendent. And so, and so when you say that it's transcendent, is it embodied? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. It's just so tingling, tingling in my body. Yes. There you go. All, of, so all throughout my body. Really, because the constructs of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral are just constructs of cognition. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they, uh, they fit into every human experience. But when you say it's transcendent and that it's tingling and the other sensations, that's when it becomes embodied. So I just had to not lose that moment because uh, those of you that are on the live stream uh, Facebook could see his face as, and his hands move in this in particular direction. Yes, as it's going outward, Tim, exactly that. And that's what's so important about not as capturing that moment. That mo- moment was captured and we just recaptured again when you said, oh, it's like it was happening again. So anyway, thank you for, for, uh, for going th- down this little journey of, of pausing for a moment about this transcendent experience. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. I mean, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that and also for stopping me because I think, you know, you, as you always do, you modeled what Krim is all about, which is about taking the time to stop and actually notice. Yes, exactly. So, and so as he said that to you, then 
what happened? How did C learning? That was 2010. This is only 2021. And I know 2019, the three of us were in New Delhi in India at the launch of C learning, which was quite an amazing event. Um, and I know that uh, all of you at Emory at the center were working very hard to make that happen. So how did that come about from that moment of the dawn to the 2019 that now uh, see, learning is in how many countries around around the uh, world so far? I, do you have that it's last over, number you told me? Over 30 countries. Over 30 countries. Yeah, oh. yeah. although we have teachers now in over 145 countries who have taken the, the online training. So, so teachers in over, oh, yeah, but formal implementation. Over, over 145 countries. Oh, my. Yeah. So can you tell us more about this? And we really want to also... Um, um, have people understand how they can avail themselves to both of your programs. But, sure. So from that wonderful moment where you were with His Holiness and he was experiencing the dawn and you were there receiving that and then now. So t- tell us more. We want to know how this journey continued. Sure. Well, I think really, you know, the credit has to go to our director, Geshe Lobsang Tenzin, because um, you know, we made little efforts, I and mean, he was behind all of this, everything I've been describing before. Um, but it was in 2015 that he called a group of us together. At, from We were at diverse institutions at that time. Um, I was uh, teaching at Life University. Um, uh, Jen Knox, who was part of that early group, is, is a teacher at Woodward and now an administrator, Woodward Academy, uh, an independent school here in Atlanta. He pulled together a group of us and said, um, the Dalai Lama, you know, wants a program created uh, to bring secular ethics and compassion, basic human values into education in K through K through 12 schools and higher education throughout the world. And, you know, we're going to make, you know, we're, we're going to make this happen. And we, um, uh, you know, and, and Tim was there and, and Carol Beck, our other associate director, and we and a few others, and we just sat down for hours and hours and hours. We had five hour long meetings, seven hour long meetings. Um, Marsha, one of our colleagues, I remember one time she just pulled her sweater over her head and like went into hiding because the meeting was going on for so long. She said, Marsha, are you okay? She's like, we've been here for seven hours. <laughs> well, you know, and, what, uh, what strikes me is that you were giving birth. When you know, giving we were, birth yeah. doesn't happen just in a, you know, in an hour or so, yeah. so go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, that led to a volume which was called Secular Ethics in Education. It's 300 pages. We pulled that together in a couple months. It has sample lessons. It had a sample framework. And and we sent that to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he uh, apparently, you know, he liked it. He actually s- started printing off copies and sending them all around the world and giving them, you know, to sending them, he met, when he met President Obama in 2016, he mentioned this, this program, this, the C learning program. And, and, you know, uh, President Obama said, send a copy to, to my Secretary of Education. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama became kind of a champion for this, and then also arranged for us to get funding through his foundation to give birth to this program. So, so the program kind of, you know, started in its earliest forms in 2015, but then it went through several different stages um, of getting the curriculum right, getting the framework right. We had many expert advisors. Once people knew, oh, this was the Dalai Lama's program and he was collaborating with Emory, then that opened up uh, everybody to wanting to collaborate with us. 
um, including, I still remember, you know, approaching you, Elaine, and saying, can we use CRIM for this program? And the instant you heard it was the Dalai Lama's program, you know, you, it opens doors. I, I didn't have a hesitation, but I don't think, I think if you would have asked me, Brendan, I don't think I would have had a hesitation. Okay. <laughs> I just want you to know that. <laughs> As many people um, around the world know, and I've said, oh, you want to use the community resiliency model for a project? Tell me about it. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you've been extremely generous, of course, in just getting this out there, getting these skills out there, which is what we want to do too. And, and that's why our program is free also. All the materials are free. And as you said, uh, with a lot of work and then growing the team and the help of our incredible team members uh, who have put in so much effort and dedication, they're all fantastic. Um, we, we were able to get to this launch uh, in April of 2019, um, which took place in, in Delhi, India. Uh, you, you were there on stage with us, of course, and, and Tim. And, and, uh, and when we launched C-Learning, there were a thousand people there from, I think, 37 different countries. Uh, interested in education and bringing this program to education. And you talk about wonderful moments since you, you made me share the other one, uh, <laughs> invited me to share the other one. Um, another thing I'll never forget is when we presented the volumes to His Holiness, my colleagues brought the, 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 the books, you know, on stage and gave it to him and, and, um, and the two others, another Nobel uh, laureate and, uh, and the Minister of Education, there um, in the Indian government, and they, 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 when they kind of unveiled the books and lifted them up, there were the thousand people that were there from from thirty seven countries, all got up and cheered, and that was amazing. Like I've never been in an event like that. I mean, you could sense that people were just so happy that this thing existed, and um, and and we've we've seen that in the incredible uptake of the program all along all around the world it's being translated into 18 languages now as i mentioned all the materials are free uh we have affiliates we have 36 primary and secondary affiliates in different countries now who are all working to bring this to children so i think the dalai lama's vision that this was something the world needed is really being borne out we're really seeing that Oh, I have so much gratitude that you reminded both Tim and I of that moment, because I certainly have tears in my eyes again, twice in one show, being in that audience and feeling that energy of this coming forward in the world was quite an amazing moment. But, you know, one of the things I, I want to I bring out, I had the great fortune of um, being one of the moderators, along with Lindy, um, of the children's uh, uh, discussion at the launch. And I, I want to just point out one little boy, you will remember the little boy, that he, um, and this is what I think is so important about the trauma-informed and the resiliency-informed and what the model is doing in many ways. But of course, this, is, this was a crim moment. But we asked the children, what did they like best about the program? And all the children had different answers of things they wanted to say. And this one little boy um, he shared with us that one of his parents was a drug addict and the other one, um, had, the other parent had died and that his two younger brothers lived in the slums in Dharmasala and that sometimes he really missed them. And one of the skills of chapter two, the community resiliency model helped him. And I said, well, which one was that? He said, well, he said, I, my teachers let me, um, when I get bumped out of my zone, I can push against the wall. And he goes, when I push against the wall, 
he said the sadness, and he started stroking his arms downward. He said, the sadness starts to leave my arms. So he had the sensory experience of the emotion of sadness slowly leaving in his arms. And I'll never forget what he said. I thought it was so organic. He said, and it leaves enough that I can go back and study and learn. And that comes back to what you said, Tim, about if we're not in that zone of well-being, it is hard for us to learn and to pay attention, not only to our studies, but to how we cultivate compassion. But I thought that was one little boy who's had such a traumatic life. The slums of Dharmasala are not an easy place to be. And he could have that experience through the program. Um, that was a moment that to me was for me like winning the Academy Award, <laughs> you know, to hear that little boy and how his life and what his life may be like, because he has the advantage of being not only in the school, but of, but of learning everything that you have in the sea learning. But it just was such an incredible moment to me. Um, there's one other thing I, I would like you to um, maybe just uh, say in a, in a, in a couple of minutes, Brendan, is that um, there's, there's chapter two, but you have distinct chapters that help the children learn about their community, about how they learn about how to be compassionate. Could you just speak a little bit to that in, um, about what the sea learning does in order to amplify that? So people who might think they might want to go and look at sea learning know that it's about many things, not only about that piece of what we cultivate inside of ourselves, but how we see our world in the macro system. Sure, uh, thank you. And I'd just say that, um, you know, we keep mentioning our materials and, and our programs. Uh, these We have a website, compassion.emory.edu, and um, people can find out about the CBCT program, the C Learning program. We also have clearning.emory.edu which is where we have our curriculum and other resources. Clearning.edu. Remember that because that's where you can get a hold of all these materials that are free that yeah. you can bring to your local school and learn how to be a facilitator of the C-Learning program. Is, is that correct? That's right. Clearning.emory.edu. Oh, S-E-E-Learning.emory.edu. Yeah. Okay. And um so, yeah, the Sea Learning Program Chapter 2 comes from the Community Resiliency Model. It's these body-based resiliency skills, which uh, uh, Elaine co-wrote uh, with us. And then, but Chapter 1 is, introduces the idea of compassion and really the foundation of our program, which is common humanity and interdependence. So what does it mean to, to be together in community? How are we interdependent? And how do we recognize our commonalities and our differences, the ways in which we're unique? Well, so one of the things I'm noticing is our time is quickly slipping, slipping away. That happened yeah. quite quickly. Yes. So I also, we're going to have you come back and talk more about the program because I think we all need to learn more. And if you can, Tim, just tell us how do people find out about CBCT? We know how to find out about the C Learning well, Program. All the programs are at compassion.emory.edu. And then we, I've got to plug briefly our Compassion 21-Day Compassion Challenge starts this Saturday with March 6th with a full day of compassion events. It's all free. We have all these great, carefully designed little videos to introduce people to these ideas if you want to learn more. And there you could look up compassionshift.emory.edu. But if you go to compassion.emory.edu, it's all there. It's all oh, there. great. And so we can all take part of this compassion challenge. So I'm hoping yes, all my listeners us. will think about this. 
And as we're getting, I want to thank my guests very much. Oh my goodness, it just is so clear to me that I can talk to you for another hour or two or more. So I'm going to bring you back. And I just really, I want to also say as we're getting ready to leave today, as you go through your, your week until we meet again next week, is that think about what else is true. Think about what these two gentlemen have said about compassion. And if you're maybe feeling a little bit forlorn about, I don't know if I'm a compassionate person and could I learn? Remember what Tim said, that we can, we can learn how to be compassionate. Remember what else is true. Thank you so much for joining us this beautiful day. Thank you, my guests. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.